You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Sunday, 28 June, 1914. It was a fine summer's day in England, in fact, one of a string of bright days, languid and unhurried, full of promise, as if the weeks to come stretched out in an endless spool of long, leisurely afternoons on the lawns, croquet mallets and tea trays, men in summer white, women in frothy, wide-brimmed hats, and girls with blue satin sashes, peaceful, measured, and like the empire, destined to go on forever. The distant sound of gunfire was too faint to hear. It disturbed no dreams, it marred no plans, it stirred no fears. Nevertheless, before the sun set on this fine summer's day, the lives of a handful of people would have been changed by murder. Charles and Carolyn Todd are a mother and son writing team and the creators of the Ian Rutledge Mysteries and the Bess Crawford Mysteries. The new Ian Rutledge Mystery is a fine summer's day. Thank you for joining me, Charles and Caroline. Our pleasure. It's nice to be here. These are such wonderful stories, and I love the historical setting. And there's just something, I have to say, kind of toothsome and satisfying about the way you've written these mysteries, the period you've chosen to set them in, and the way you've created the characters. And I just wanted you to explore that idea. What led you, uh, I guess it's almost 20 years ago, to decide to join together and write the, the first Ian Rutledge mystery? We were both history buffs, and it was natural for us to turn to an historical event as a backdrop for the mysteries we wanted to write. And it also gave us an opportunity to have a detective who had to detect... He didn't have CSI bringing him information to, to explain why or, or what had happened or, or um, any of the other information that he had to seek out for himself. Part of our interest, too, was both of us had always liked England, traveled to England before, and uh, England was a perfect place for this time period where not only were things familiar in terms of language. There were phones, not many cars, not many, but reasonably recognizable things as opposed to language of methinks, etc. But World War I, Peter Jennings and uh, Tom Brokaw wrote were, was a pivotal moment in world history things that we're dealing with today, as a matter of fact, still come from the Treaty of Versailles and World War I. And it seemed a perfect backdrop to not only write about England, but how England dramatically changed. The United States came in late, didn't have the, as much involvement, although they had an important role we only lost about 230,000 in World War One. England lost 5 million. And if you think about what that did, 
in terms of devastating entire towns where you would go in and all the men of a certain generation were no longer there. It's such a powerfully evocative period, too. And I think what's nice is that when you immerse yourself in the very first Ian Rutledge mystery, A Test of Wills, we, we meet a man who's literally divided. And I think that must have been kind of a, a, a tough call for you when you created him. So I'd like you to talk about, did the two of you talk about this character when you came together and said, we're going to make him this and that? How much did you know about him and how much just came out in, in the way you wrote it? Well, we wanted to have someone who had a career before the war, as many men do before they go into service and then come back after the war and try to pick up the threads of, of what he had done, what his reputation was, and what he wanted to do with the rest of his life. It was important, too, for him to have served. Most men did. So for us, he sort of evolved from the, the feeling of what we wanted to say about England and very shortly, we, we had Rutledge fully formed and fully vibrant in his own way. He, we didn't twist and turn him like a puppet. He took over and, and ran his own world. As Rutledge said in A Fine Summer's Day, I'm a policeman. I catch murderers. I'm not a soldier who kills people. And yet that's exactly what ultimately wound up happening to Rutledge. He went from catchy murderers to actually technically being a murderer during four years of trench warfare and then coming back and resuming his career, test of wills to test his fortitude and character, coming back, coping with post-traumatic stress disorder, hiding it from everyone to keep his career going at Scotland Yard and becoming a detective and catching murderers once again. You know, one of the things that uh, I found so engaging about him was uh, the way you immediately plunge us into his world as a policeman. There's just the the first book just opens up like lightning, I, and, and it's it really gets you. But I, a character who comes back and and just the gift who keeps on giving is is uh, bowels his boss. <laughs> How soon did this character come up in, in your in your vision of writing these books? At one point in time, haven't we all had a bowls in our careers? <laughs> yes, I think we all have. As you create him, he's sort of a nemesis within the force, and this sets up an interesting dynamic because. You have two characters who are ostensibly on the same side, but who are um, very much on opposite sides. Sometimes it seems like Ian Rutledge is more of a of a mind with the people he's chasing than he is with the people he's working for. Well, the thing is that Bowles represented the old school in, at Scotland Yard, the man who came up from the ranks, probably lower, <clears throat> excuse me, middle class. Um, and Rutledge represents the new man, the educated man coming into the, to the, um, the yard and changing the tone of it. And naturally, a man like Bowles would resent this. He wouldn't want Rutledge to succeed because if he didn't succeed, then perhaps the yard would go back to the old practice of, of uh, introducing men from the ranks into the detective division. 
you know, too, that brings up something that I think that's really interesting about these books is that that was a time when the classes were very clearly delineated. Yes. And and you couldn't really say it was class warfare, but there was really a lot of tension between them. And the parallels between then and now, as you read these books, it's it's eerie. It's it's really uh, evocative. So I'd like you to talk about just creating that kind of sensibility of then and invest writing it up in a way that um, rings true to us now. Well, remember, too, that one of the many reasons we felt that a Scotland Yard inspector in London had been done and done extremely well by many other people, and we didn't want uh, crimes like Jack the Ripper or gang killings down at the docks or those kinds of crimes. We wanted the more cerebral type of crime where uh, people came to kill as a last resort when they couldn't come up with any other possible solution to the dilemma that faced them. And so going out to the uh, different villages where the books are set, which we visit in person, the class distinction wasn't quite as great, first of all. Uh, there were certain aspects that even in the small towns, the, the people's associations were different, but you still had the lord of the manor going into town and knowing people by name, whereas in London, except for the hired help coming in to the upper-class neighborhoods. There was not very much intermingling at all, and so it allowed us to kind of broaden the potential suspects. And it's very interesting studying this period. In some ways, class distinctions told people who they were and where they belonged. A sense of security. Yes, a certain sense of security. There were people who rebelled against it. There always are. But for many people, they knew their place from the day they were born. And for many of them, they stayed in that place for, for the rest of their lives. So you, you don't always see repression. You also see security, as, as you said. To them, it's been that way for centuries. And and that was just the way it was supposed to be. And then I think the war was in many ways a great equalizer because yes. of the way it indiscriminately wiped out so many men of that generation that never came back. You go into small towns and you see the beautiful monuments to the Great War carefully maintained and in beautiful condition. You go in the village church in the bell tower and you see the lists of the the names and you'll see first name Jones, the next name be another first name Jones, 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 and you realize, and we try to explain this when Rutledge comes back, 
Don't complain to me about your PTSD or shell shock. You're here. You have your limbs. My husband died. My children, all my sons are gone. My neighbor's husband's gone. My neighbor's uncle's gone. You're lucky to be here. You know, um, what interests me too is that uh, the way you've created the struggle for a Rutledge within himself. And so <laughs> I'd like you to talk about making that decision because I, I thought it was a really gutsy decision to, to create uh, Hamish. And, and I, I think that that really works. It gives you a, a, a means, it's some, a very useful device for you. Did you know going in that that was something you wanted to do? We didn't Tell realize about Hamish. <laughs> we didn't realize that Hamish would become so popular with fans. Um, many of the officers who came back from from that war and other wars felt the guilt of having sent so many young men, sometimes green troops, across no man's land and watching them die. And after hundreds of these, uh, there was a lot of um, survivors' guilt. The feeling that that they had been responsible for the deaths of these men, even though the decisions were made by the high command. And it seemed natural, since Rutledge had been an officer, he had been promoted to captain. It seemed natural for him to remember these men, not just brush them off as, as the necessity of war. And Hamish, in many ways epitomizes all these young men. He puts a face to all these young men who had to die for the, the for king and country, for the glory of the war. And it's it it has it has been a very interesting and very rewarding experience dealing with this because we've learned an awful lot about PTSD and what people actually go through. Some of it we can't put in a book. It took a lot of research, both with people in the mental health profession, uh, spending time quietly. I did some work in the men's auxiliary of the American Legion because my father was in the Army during the Korean War. And uh, they would talk in the Legion post, but not. They would. You couldn't schedule an interview, so to speak, uh, and that's been one of the the rewarding parts. Is when someone comes up to you and says, "Thank you. I I didn't know how to say that," or "I understand my father, my grandfather better now because you you explained to me." a lot about the, the mental aspect of fighting a war. Well, this also gives you um, two characters in one, and that's two character arcs to develop and a whole set of interactions to develop within one character, which is... Really, it's very complicated it's, to try. But somehow, if, if you let the characters go... If you let them be themselves, they sort it out, and you don't have to follow along and, and create it. Um, just the 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 conversations, the feelings they have towards each other, come naturally. Uh, we we feel sort of like 
Boswell following Johnson sometimes, you know, trying to capture everything that, that we see in them that they're showing to us. And really and truly, Hamish came from Rutledge. We didn't, we knew about the time and all the things we've described thus far, but it was in writing the development of the character of Rutledge that spoke to us and gave us the idea of this having a conversation within his own mind because Hamish is not a ghost, not a spirit. Hamish doesn't provide information or see things that Rutledge doesn't see, but he represents a different perspective, a different point of view of the people in the case and allows Rutledge to have a mental exploration of the crime and the people, culture, and history of where the current novel is set that allows you to do it. Plus, you it's kind of hard to have Rutledge bouncing along on a dirt road in his 1914 Rolls Royce and thinking about a crime with not, without really having somebody to talk to. I wanted to explore this idea of the PTSD in, in Rutledge a little bit more because one of the things that we know a lot more about it now than, than it was known then. And so I'd like you to talk about, you know, creating the level of period knowledge within within the characters and how how much they know about it versus what we know because that kind of that there's like two levels that you have to deal with it's critical with the hindsight being 2020 yes. to catch what was currently the thought process it's very interesting um not being british not living in Britain, just going there to, to do research, we've had to dig probably more deeply than someone who's lived there all their lives. And it's, it's been an education because we're learning a different language in some ways. We're learning a different culture, and we're learning a different time frame. And you have to be true to this. You cannot superimpose modern mores on people of that uh, period you can't assume that they would see things the same way you do. When you're having conversations between characters, it has to be within the, the framework of what they would have said to each other um, normally. A, a perfect example is Downton Abbey. They try very carefully to keep the, the characters uh, within the, the time period and their thoughts and their, their responses to different situations, and we do the same thing. And a fine summer's day, as you know, <clears throat> Rutledge talks about what he reads in the paper. And fortunately, we are able to go back and read the contemporary papers because there was a lot of censorship and a lot of propaganda yes. uh, involving the amount of information that the government wanted to pass on. 
everybody was all gung-ho to go off and get some medals and a chance of glory and a chance to improve their careers and futures by serving in this war that would be over by Christmas and all the ladies looking forward to their brave hero coming home uh, and being in the grand parades uh, because that's what they thought it was going to be and, and even the high command of England and France and Germany had no clue what was ultimately going to happen. So by reading those papers, by reading letters that soldiers sent home during the period helps you uh, convey what they actually knew versus what we can sit here and read like the guns of August and try and put into a novel that's trying to describe what was going on at that precise moment. My father said that he learned more about World War II after it was over than he knew while he was living through it because um, so much information was withheld from the public and uh, programs on uh, PBS and, and other stations really do open a door that was kept closed for a very long time. We have to be careful of this. We can't have Rutledge say something that he couldn't possibly have known, no matter how interesting it might have been for the story. He has to stay with what he knew. We talk about Rutledge's conflict sometimes when he is trying to solve a crime and you're kind of you have an attachment to a certain character who turns out to be the uh, suspect or the criminal. And Rutledge wants to make sure that he's right because when he presses charges against someone, if they are convicted, they face the gallows. But we don't talk about uh, the death penalty because... At that time in 1919, the death penalty was just an accepted practice. Yes, Rutledge wants to get it right so that the wrong person doesn't go to the gallows, but there's no sense of, well, the death penalty is inhumane, the death penalty is amoral, because it was just a natural part of the justice system at the time, so we don't talk about it. It was just accepted. I mean, for centuries, men had been and women had been hanged, and therefore you, you accept it as part of, of what goes on in your, your world. You don't change it. Well, I think that's one of the things, too, that's really interesting in reading these books. There's a certain kind of flatness of, of affect because I think at the time people – and you, I believe this is somewhat deliberate – because people at that time were not so expressive. Everybody kind of kept things kind of behind a facade. Well, that's very English. <laughs> you can find that in England today. Well, the, the, the old stiff upper lip uh... – but in private, there were, were more of those conversations. With Rutledge, primarily, 
solving crimes immediately after the war. We don't just look at what the war did to Rutledge. We look at what the war did in every town and hamlet all over England and the impact it had on the people he's investigating. And in Bess's situation, Bess represents the kind of a new generation of the the beginning of the end of the British Empire and the more modern woman who was gaining the right to vote, who Bess drives, Bess is athletic, Bess grew up on the post with her mother in India following her father, the retired army colonel, uh, and has a strong sense of, of military and duty, and that's why she volunteers to be in the nursing corps. And she's not your typical uh, Victorian, I'm getting the vapors from the very sight of blood and fainting right away. Well, I, I, this is something I'd like to talk to you about because uh, Rutledge has been uh, pretty much, we see him before and after the war, but not during. And uh, But Bess is smack dab in the middle. Talk, talk about making that decision. We've done short stories about <laughs> Rutledge during, during the war. The war. Uh, and and Hamish during the war uh, before he is uh, executed. Executed, and Rutledge gives him the coup de gras, but uh, not in novels themselves. Uh, because once again, for example, Rutledge is written in third person, which works well for that series. Uh, although we tried it, first person worked better with Bess because she's the amateur sleuth and, and it allows us to express her more modern outlook on things and yet her deep understanding of British society and her role in it and also her experience being the commanding officer's daughter on a post and her mother's responsibilities as the wife of the commanding officer in the Maharani Pearls, which is a short story about Bess. It talks about uh, Bess's mother being the, the wife of the colonel working with the wife of the senior enlisted officer, working together, sort of taking care of the women and children of the post. Bess is, has learned duty from watching her father command a, a, a regiment. She has learned uh, to be objective as a nurse. And she has a certain amount of physical courage because she has been in a situation, for example, in India, where the mutiny is still of 1857 is still in everybody's mind. And so... She's the perfect person to send to the battlefields of France. And you see it basically from the point of view of the women who put the wounded back together if they could. You don't see the battles actually happening, but you see the result of the battles. You see men brought in with, with terrible wounds. And 
you hold their hand while they're dying, or you read the letters from their wives or sweethearts to them. And it gives you a, a very poignant point of view for war. It's, she doesn't pass judgment on it. And I think that's why the books um, are so popular in Germany. We've kept an objective look at, at war ourselves. We're not really trying to describe the politics and the international affairs aspect of the war. It's more on a personal level. I remember one of the people I met that had a lot to do with my understanding of Bess as we were trying to create her. She was a retired brigadier general from the Army Nursing Corps. She served in World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. A very affectionate, very demonstrative person, and yet when she made a decision and told you to do something, you remember that she had, at one time, had that star on her epaulets. <laughs> you know, you talked about all the, the villages where you set these. Uh, so you act, do you, before you uh, start a new one, do you just strike out, stick a pin in, in a map and say, here we go, here we go? Well, we never outline. Oh, okay. So we've never, I've never been able to outline and Charles has done it in the business since, but it's more fun for us to set the characters in motion and see where they lead us. And about 10 pages from the end, 20 pages sometimes, it it narrows down and, and you begin to see what Rutledge sees. And uh, once that happens, you bring it to a dramatic close. It's just, it's just, we want the reader to follow us, mm, th- but well, not get ahead of us. <laughs> in, in the setting mm-hmm. and choosing where to go, sometimes we will think or we'll come across a story about a village that sounds really interesting and and we will intentionally plan to to go visit this place. And uh, I can think of one place in particular, although we did use it in passing in another book, uh, we got to the town and it was just kind of, the British are reserved with this town they just didn't want you to be there. They hurried you out of the store or the shop, and they just, you felt like people wanted you to go away. <laughs> really? And yet we kind of made a wrong turn later on in the same trip and wound up in a really unique village that, we had just re- kept raising questions in our mind, and so we wound up using that location. And that's why going there is so important when we were working on Watchers of Time and standing uh, kind of on a hill looking out over the marshes, which is a very famous view. We just happened to turn around, and we'd never seen the picture from the camera looking in the opposite direction. And here in an open field standing by itself was a pocket cathedral, uh, an exact replica of a full cathedral, but down to a village church size. 
wow. called the Pocket Cathedral, and it was beautiful, and it was just sitting out in the open by itself, and, and, and that didn't make sense. And we started to wonder why and what the story was behind that, and ultimately that became Watchers of Time. The cathedral was built by wool money back in the days in the 1400s, 1500s, when wool was king. And people had had contributed money for absolutely beautiful stained glass windows. In fact, there was one to the Venerable Bede, who was buried in Durham uh, in England. And so you, you wander through this church and you can see exactly what might happen in, in a murder mystery. It, it's, um, it's fun to, to find a place and say, you know, I think we could bury a body here or we could set a, uh, an exciting scene here. And then it just grows from there. And we talk about it at night, careful not to say too much during dinner when people overhear us. Um, you know, you can't say, well, I think we could kill this person. <laughs> this doesn't go over very well. But um, We try to be inobtrusive when we come. We don't try to hide and we don't try to pretend that we're British. But uh, we, we kind of divide and conquer. Uh, one of us will go to the town square if they're having a, a, a market that day and go to the different stalls and talk to the artisans and the farmers and the bakers and the cheese shops that I love so much or, or the pubs where I have to go in and do some hands-on research. <laughs> um, I couldn't do it for a while because they smoke so much in the pubs. But the interesting thing about the pub is you'll see a man sitting up at the bar and in his lap will be his little dog very quietly lying there while he's drinking his pint and then they get up and go out together. It's fabulous. <laughs> and yet, it's not always England. Uh, one of the things, I hate to go back to the same example, but uh, Caroline was in Egypt, last place you'd think you'd find a clue for a Rutledge novel, but uh, you did, didn't you, Caroline? There was a, a large square bit of sandstone that had been carved with the apes who are... The, the creatures in the, the, the Egyptian um, religion who sorted out who would have a future and who would not. And these were called the Watchers of Time. And we had been looking for a title for the book that became Watchers of Time. So we simply took this large piece of stands, sandstone and set it down in a garden in England and explained how it got to be there and used the title for the book. That sounds like so much fun. It uh, is. Tra travel. <laughs> I love travel anyway. Suddenly we were able to take that Egyptian trip and take it off on our taxes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now, one of the things I really like about your books is we when we talk about mysteries, and I realized this as I was reading your books, is that when you talk about mysteries, you always talk about the detective, and then you'll you'll talk about the perpetrator of the crime. But I think what you do well, and a really underutilized aspect of mysteries, is designing the perfect victim. And I think your victims are so well 
created as characters that that instantly there's this huge mystery around them, and, and I think that's a very uh, interesting uh, technique to use in your I, mysteries. It raises emotions in the reader. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, it makes you want to find out who did it that much more than just for the exercise of it. You have a the hopefully we can inspire in the reader a a greater motivation to proceed through the mystery by having it reach out and touch them on a certain level. Wouldn't you agree, Caroline? Well, I think the the most important thing is that the victim is really going to tell you a great deal about the story. Why did he have to die or she? Why did he or she have to die just then? Why was the murder committed in this particular fashion? Was it a woman's crime? Was it a man's crime? Was it hatred? Was it love? Was it greed? Was it lust? Why why is this person dead? And that is the, the way you hang the story around the body. The body isn't just a convenient um, person on page one, and we move on from there. The body has something to say. And I don't think we're giving anything away when we talk about, uh, wasn't it, the long shadow? I'm sorry, after 17 books, sometimes <laughs> in that series alone, it gets a little confusing, the gas mask. Uh, that was... Um, a pale horse where yes, I'm sorry. the gas mask on the body in the, the ruins of Fountain Abbey mm-hmm. tells you something about what's going on. You don't realize it at the beginning. It, it looks like a very macabre thing to do to a corpse. What is, what is the purpose of a gas mask on a dead man? And yet... Telling the story, you begin to wonder who had a reason to put that gas mask on there. Why? And what did how it say? It was discovered by some boys who really didn't know what they were looking at. You know, it's like, is this a monster? Like, yeah. You know, you can imagine some, not small children, but young About boys nine or ten. Out wandering around the old ruins and playing and coming across something like that and not immediately recognizing him for what it was, but this odd monster-looking thing. Well, they had gone there, slipping out of bed in the middle of the night to raise the devil, (laughs) and they really thought they had. (laughs) Your latest book, uh, A Fine Summer's Day, takes a really interesting direction because for people new to your work, this is a perfect place to start. Talk about making the decision to write a prequel, which is so much fun to read because everything that we've read in all the subsequent books, we see here before a a very interesting before picture. Yes, but it it gave us a chance. Here is a crime that Rutledge is looking at from a broader perspective that in many ways Scotland Yard is trying to wrap up because it's time to go to war. It's time to go get your medals. Uh, The local 
vocabulary is saying, well, it's just something simple. You know, there are more important things. His gene, uh, his, his fiance is encouraging him. Oh, don't worry about that police stuff. She wants to see him, you know, in uniform, marching off with the men like all of his contemporaries. And where does he, where does he draw the line? How does he choose what direction to go in? I think the the thing we were trying to say is we had known him for 16 books. The man who survived the war, the man who came back to Scotland Yard after the war and tried to take up the career that he had abandoned to go to war. And we were talking about the fact that we hadn't really seen the man who who started all of this, the man who was whole in 1914. And so we went back to look at him, and we found so many interesting aspects of his life, uh, not just the things that we had talked about in those 16 books, but also some depths and some uncertainties and some periods of learning. He has to learn quite a bit in this book, how to deal with his superior, how to deal with the fiancé. Um, it was an interesting experience. Uh, it's, I don't know, it was very strange. I had gone to, to England right after finishing the book, and a friend of mine had taken me to um, see Warhorse on the stage, which was an absolutely mind-blowing experience. And here I had just finished sending Rutledge into this war as, as the author. And here we were witnessing what he was facing. And it was really strange. I wrote to Charles and I said, you should have come with me. He joined us later, but I said, you should have come with me because it was, it was one of the most appropriate things to have done to go see Warhorse. But it was emotionally almost devastating. And because it, trying to write A Fine Summer's Day when we already knew what was going to happen to Rutledge, but you still came to that crossroads of him making that final decision, and it almost felt like even though we knew we had no choice, we were still sending him off, and we knew what he was going to face in four years. He didn't, but we did. He didn't, but we did, and we sent him there anyway. I, I think that's uh, what uh, governments have been doing for uh, time immemorial. We, we, yes, <laughs> yes. And sometimes it's hard. Yeah. Sometimes a character we like very much turns out to be the, the, the killer. And you have to accept this. You have to look at the story, look at what's been said and what's been done, and agree that this person, no matter how much you care for them, must be tried for murder. It's, it's very strange. Do you, so you don't know going in? We have no idea who the killer is. Really? How much fun is that? <laughs> but this is what I said about not outlining. Uh -huh. We go scene by scene by scene, and it develops along with us, and it opens up, and, and a character will do something that you had no idea this character was going to do, 
or this character will not see a something. Master, you don't pull the strings and make them robotically follow your commands. You you let them develop themselves as their conversations go on, and and we start to learn more about the different characters and what their perspective is and how their culture has a great deal to do with their interpretation of what they have perceived. And by having it in different places all over England, uh, you start to learn that East Anglia versus Cornwall is just as different as Maine and San Francisco. I love, too, the, the, the geographical locations in England, and I love the local constabularies everywhere. Yes. You have so much fun with those guys. Well, they, they're, they're accustomed to doing their own thing. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to murder, Scotland Yard is rather like the FBI in a, a serious case. Um, the chief constable of a county will send for Scotland Yard to solve the the crime. And these men know their village. They think they know what drives the people in it. And yet here comes an outsider who has never met these people, and he will draw out something. We have said many times in the books that Rutledge is a very good listener, and he has to be because as he listens to what people say, they are betraying themselves without being aware of it. And he has to be able to sift through the, the, the lies, the, the chaff, the um, sense of, of, of duty to someone else and come to the conclusion that this person does know something or does not know something about what has been going on. Constables are almost by their job description, very protective of the people in their town. Yes. And turning a situation like this over to a perfect stranger is quite often very difficult for them to do. And I think that's one part of my career that I think helped uh, towards the end of my years working in uh, contract service management I was an operations analyst. I was the one when one of our business uh, locations was having troubles. Uh, I was the guy who came in from regional headquarters that nobody (laughs) really wanted to see. (laughs) But sometimes the constables in a town could identify the, the young men who were drinking too much or not doing well in school and set them on the right path. Mm-hmm. So they have a, a very fatherly um, outlook quite often on, on um, uh, the needs and the, the demands of their, their, um, their village. And it's hard sometimes to change their minds. So Rutledge has um, a boss who is giving him a hard time and he has the constable in the local village well, for example, in one of the books, um, A Matter of Justice, for reasons of his own, the man in charge there in that village is deliberately sidetracking Rutledge for his own reasons. And Rutledge is not aware of this until 
farther down the road where he, he begins to see certain aspects that don't jibe. And he begins to understand that this man is, is throwing roadblocks in his way for his own reasons. And that's interesting to develop, too. You talked about Rutledge being a good listener, and it struck me that Rutledge is the way you created the character. He's listening on three levels. He's listening as Ian Rutledge. He's mm-hmm. also listening as ha- Hamish, and he's listening to Hamish comment on what they've both yes. seen. And that gives him some extra perspective, and it's also really fun. It is actually his own subconscious that's supplying this, mm-hmm. but it's Hamish's voice, Hamish's um, very strict covenanter upbringing in Scotland that is informing Hamish's opinions of things. Uh, he he sometimes refers to a woman as as uh, someone to avoid because she's too strong a character and he can't quite cope with that. And I think we've all had that first impression of a person that quite often is wrong that we never express verbally but even though we try to compensate for it and work hard to overcome it there are just some people we meet in this world that we just don't like and yet, how do you express that and how do you express the fact that you need to overcome that if you're objectively going to investigate a crime? And Hamish is very useful when you're trying to do that. You know, it's sort of like having that bad thought in the back of your mind that you have to say, now, shut up. That's not the polite thing to say. You know, uh, this reminds me a bit of of Bowles, too. One of the things that's interesting about Bowles is that he's kind of a reprehensible character, but also he's we are reminded that he's on the receiving end of a reprehensible class system so that we have some kind of sympathy for him in that tension. I think that that's an interesting aspect of these books. Well, that's what I was saying earlier about making you uh, have a sense of compassion both for Bowles and for the person who is ultimately at the end of Rutledge's investigation charged with the murder. Uh, You may have, in an odd way, grown fond of that particular character and... I think it allows us, we've never really gone through and said, well, where can I hide a red herring? But you do put in your red herrings by making a person like a character who can turn out to be a very bad person. Mm. We also have, I don't know what it is. I mean, we've written 25 books, and I still don't really understand that's a lot. How you guys write fast? Do you send stuff back and forth, or <laughs> but, we work scene by scene? Oh, really? But the 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 thing is, um, your subconscious as a writer will throw something in. Uh, just to use a silly example, um, you somebody sees a butterfly, and you don't realize that they're looking at that butterfly and thinking about something else. You just 
had this person looking at the butterfly. And then later on, you suddenly realize that looking at that butterfly was significant. And there's your red herring, and you didn't even know you had planted it until 30, 50, 100 pages later. Caroline still holds it against me that I took graduate-level semantics courses in college. <laughs> now, when, you, when you're collaborating, I want to... Is this done by email? Are you sitting across from one another? No, we can't work in the same room. Oh, okay. We talk too much. <laughs> Even when uh, I will come to Wilmington, Delaware, where Caroline lives, so that when we go on a tour like we are now, we're, we're leaving together from the same place rather than trying to coordinate two different locations and airlines and flights. Uh we still will work in separate rooms because we get distracted, get off topic. Uh, and Caroline works in the late evenings, and I tend to work more in the early mornings. And so we'll bounce the scene back and forth to kind of give an overly simplistic point of view, once you have chapter one, which we work very hard on establishing the the emotion and, and the sense of the crime and the setting, chapter two is basically Rutledge is assigned a case. He goes out and he begins his investigation. He meets the constable. He meets other people in the town. And your cast of characters begins to grow. And so that's the first scene of chapter two, let's say. And we'll go back and forth on that until both of us are feel that we've pretty well finish that scene and then we'll move on to the next scene because ultimately if we have a disagreement it's what's best for Rutledge or what's best for Bess and we both feel that we want the reader to read a book and be able to enjoy it and not say well chapter one was written by Caroline and chapter two was written by Charles I couldn't pick up that book and honestly say to you, I wrote that sentence. I remember us working on that sentence or <laughs> that particular part of that chapter. But it, 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 that's what keeps a relationship between us working so well. Also, uh, it's very interesting. If we can get the first page or the first paragraph, it depends on how much material is there. It could be several pages. But if we can get that first scene, whatever it is, absolutely perfect. It sets the stage for everything that follows, and all we have to do is, is build from that. Just as the, the section uh, in the very beginning of this book, it sets the stage of a of, of wonderful summer. Everyone is having a lovely time parties on the lawn, and yet in the distance, well beyond their range of hearing, a murder has occurred that, that will change everything for them. It's, it told a story in microcosm of what was going to happen for the rest of the book, but you don't know it until you come to the end and really understand don't what's give it away. said. Hmm? <laughs> don't give it away. No, I won't. <laughs> 
you know, uh, in this book you write at one point, I thought, and this is a really interesting perception you write, you realize that Clayton's children, Annie, Peter, and Michael, were young, and the young dwelled in the present. And I think that's such an interesting observation, and it's so pertinent to the mystery genre in the way people dwell in the present and perceive about have perceptions of the past and the way the past infects and rises up through the present. We've always looked at the past. I mean, we grew up in the South where everywhere you looked, there was a reminder of, of a war. And it's very, it's very true that, that the young look in the present and the elderly look back. And so as you're working with people and working with characters, you have to know what it is that moves them, what it is that is important to them. And so in many ways, um, you have to be a priest, a psychologist, um, a a social uh, worker, and everything else so that you can bring these characters to life in their own world, not your world, but their own world. You have to be a good listener, and you have to be a people person. And uh, I have to admit, I like to play a little game where uh, I'll be sitting on an airplane, which surprisingly I do a lot now. (laughs) Uh, And I won't look back at the people behind me, but I'll kind of lean my seat back and just quietly listen to their conversation. I'm not being a peeping Tom. I'm not trying to steal their identity. I'm trying to listen to their conversation and try and get an understanding of who are these people? What is their relationship? What are their backgrounds? And especially when I don't really know what they look like until the flight's over and I stand up and look back at who's sitting behind me. And sometimes I'm right and sometimes I'm totally (laughs) wrong. Charles and Carolyn Todd are the authors of the Ian Rutledge Mysteries and the Bess Crawford Mysteries. Their newest book is an Ian Rutledge mystery, A Fine Summer's Day. It's been a fine interview. Thank you for joining me, Charles and Carolyn. Oh, it's been a pleasure. We enjoyed it. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.